This is Trust the Evidence, a new podcast series from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, presenting conversations with individuals interested in improving healthcare through the use of better evidence. I'm Kamal Matani, Deputy Director of the CBM, and it's a great pleasure to be joined today by Professor Trish Greenhall. Uh, Trish, you're a Professor of Primary Care, uh, a GP, a research lead on a number of programmes, uh, of work and an author. Have I forgotten anything? Um, yeah, well, I suppose I'm a, I'm a mother as well and yeah. a wife and I have a domestic role. I do have a life outside academia, but apart from that, yeah, that's the main things, yeah. So with all those things going on, um, what really motivates you? I guess I've always been attracted to academia. I like the intellectual rigour of asking questions, of finding answers, of critically questioning the findings that we've got, asking is this the only interpretation of the data? You know, I, 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 I love that. I've, I've never been anything except an academic. I've always had an academic dimension to my clinical work. Um, yeah, I think it's as simple as that, really. Mm, no, that's great. I mean, that, that's, that, that gives us a feeling of why you're so busy and, and the passion that drives that. But I know one of the things that you are a scholar in and also very passionate about is research that has impact. Yeah, that's true. I suppose one thing to say is that uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate medical student, I took a year out of medicine to study social and political sciences. And I've been very influenced by the social sciences and also the political sciences, the study of, of how society works, how policy is made. And more recently, I took an MBA. Um, it was fun going back to university um, part-time, you know, in, in my 50s. Um, but doing the MBA made me much more aware of the organisation and business and management and the financial dimensions of um, running a university, for example, um, planning research, running research programs when you're when you're a funder, all that kind of thing. So I think my clinical background uh, as a clinician, as a GP, uh, my social science background, and and my business and management background all come together mm. in this question of hang on a minute, what are we here for? We're doing research, we're funding research, but what are, what are the things that shape research and shape research policy? And what are the constraints in getting impact from our research? Mm. And so when, when, you, when you draw all those skills together, it's a very impressive field of, of work that you've been doing and you know, training that you've had. Do you think that some of the work that we're doing isn't impactful? And, and, and why is that? Well, I think let's first of all unpack what we mean by impact. Mm. Because if you look on the uh, Research Council's UK website, for example they divide impact into two different kinds and they actually paint them different colours. There's a lovely diagram on RCUK website. And so um, the first kind of impact is academic impact. And that impact is, is the impact that you'll get if you give conference presentations, you publish papers, and uh, you get uh, your work cited by other researchers. And you can, you can build up something called an H-index, which is an index of how often your work has been cited by other academics. Now, if, if academia is worth anything, then your, your academic impact is an important dimension of your research impact. But actually, what government means by research impact is we're providing a certain amount of money to the academic sector, to, to universities, to do research. What are we getting back mm. over and above what academics are producing for themselves? 
So the idea that academia just exists to generate academic papers, I think, is, is yesterday's view of what's going on. Um, we, we are now in an increasingly tight funding framework and we have to turn around to government and say, look, you've, you've given us the higher education sector this amount of money for research and this is what you have got back in terms of what is known as societal impact. And societal impact means in the healthcare sector, for example, um, improvements in, in morbidity and mortality, in quality of life, in uh, outcomes that patients would identify as relevant, so all that patient re um, relevant outcome measures. Uh, those are all societal impacts, but also things like um, improving public understanding of science, uh, generating public debate on important issues, and Influences on the economy, saving money, making healthcare more efficient, all those things. And, and actually, when I sat on the panel for the Research Excellence Framework uh, back in 2014, we defined impact very, very broadly. And we even had an open-ended section saying, you know, anything we haven't already thought of, but fits the, the broad understanding of what research impact is. So the, there's academic impact, there's societal impact, and both are important. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely see that. I mean, that's a great description uh, of both, but do you think we tend, in the research community anyway, to focus more on the academic impact and, you know, trying to put our H-index to you know, get it higher, trying to talk about the number of publications we've yeah, got. I do. Uh, and, and you know, the, the whole of the academic, uh, not the whole, but a lot of the academic sector is geared towards rewarding uh, academic publications. So if you've got your paper into the Lancet or whatever, uh, and actually some junior researchers are actually penalised for doing things like going giving public talks rather than sitting there scratching away um, writing another paper for publication. And I think um, one of the things that I've done in my own department is actually change the human resource policies so that people, first of all, can't be punished for doing high quality research impact work uh, or you know, societal impact work, but also that they might get rewarded and it could go into their promotion application that they have spent quite a lot of time talking to policymakers, talking to frontline clinicians, that kind of thing. But certainly, yes, uh, academics all too often are very interested in getting their paper into the Lancet or Nature or whatever, and then they think that they're getting impact by sending a press release out to the to the to the public press, and when they're on the front page of the Daily Telegraph for one day, they think they've had impact. Well, actually, there's more that can be done to to achieve impact from research. With that sort of stance to one side, more around the academic impact, do you think that the people who for whom this research is being delivered, created for, are missing out? Uh, yes, to some extent, and uh, you know, there's some actually very sad uh, examples, and I'm not going to name any because I don't want to become unpopular with the, with the people involved. Where, you know, the the researchers' agenda uh, for getting um, a particular slant on a particular condition is really quite different from the patient's agenda. And if you are someone who suffers from a particular disease or, or you're at risk of a disease, your priorities are very, very different. And so one of the things I think we need to do to improve 
societal impact from research is get more dialogue going about what the priorities should be in research. And I know there, there have been some initiatives like the James Lind Alliance, you know, just public debates. You know, the Wellcome Trust have funded some really good public debates uh, about research priorities, that kind of thing. Um, but I think we all need to take those very seriously. And there, of course, is a science to the consultation of citizens around uh, research priorities and around you know, the way science should be done. Having said that, I also think that there are certain aspects of science that, that you have to be trained for. And so we have to be quite careful in what we're asking the lay public citizens. Um, but it's like the, you know, the difference between an, an expert witness and, and a jury in, in legal cases. You know, there, there is definitely room for a citizen view on this. Yeah, and so incorporating that, that view, um, building research from more of a needs-led approach, would that be fair to say? Yes, I think it's partly about needs, but it's also about um, desirability. Mm. So I've just finished writing a commentary for a journal whose name escapes me, but never mind. Uh, One of the things that we were talking about was new health technologies and how you create value in those health technologies. Now, of course, you can create value by talking it up to investors and saying this is going to save this number of lives and, you know, let's have some venture capital. But then there's the question of the desirability of the technology. Is this a good idea? Would it be a good idea to treat patients with disease X uh, with this technology Y? And very often those questions about the desirability of the health technology don't get asked until the technology has already gone through all the development phase and has got the approvals and there's, you know, registered as a medical device and all that kind of thing and it's ready to roll. And then someone turns around to the patients and says, well, do you actually want this? Um, And in fact, one of the things that we've been writing about in this article is um, how can we better align the, the system that decides whether something is desirable with the system that actually provides startup funding and also the regulatory system that says, is this efficacious? Is it safe? Is it high quality? Because you can be efficacious, safe and, 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 and high quality technology, but still not be desirable. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of things to talk about, actually. And so those sorts of things that need to be talked about, they need to be happening earlier in the process. Yes, but I think it's also slightly naive to take the view that, and I'm not accusing you personally of this, but many people do take the view that there is a linear pipeline from the basic idea for either a drug or a device or an intervention and then that goes all the way through and so the the idea is that you just need to do certain things earlier in that linear process. The plain fact is it's not a linear process. All sorts of things are happening in a very non-linear way Um, and what we've got here is a three-dimensional plate of spaghetti. It's a complex system and Sure, every system is designed to get the results it's getting. And at the moment, we've got a situation where quite a lot of the, the, certainly the medical technologies that are coming on stream are not terribly useful. And so, yes, we need to put some different tweaks and incentives into the system. But I think the idea of thinking of it as earlier in a linear pathway is is just oversimplifying it slightly but but yeah broadly speaking um what you're suggesting is is correct yeah and, and are we capturing so when research is impactful genuinely impactful are we capturing you know the measure of impact correctly do you think 
Um, well, that's an interesting question. You know, how do we measure impact? Um, and of course, I mean, when I did a study, we published it in BMC Medicine in, I think, 2015, where we looked at impact case studies across the community-based health sciences, the ones that were submitted to the, um, the 2014 Research Excellence Framework. And we looked at 162 of them. And the extraordinary thing about those impact case studies was very, very few of them actually had the kind of impact that a patient would recognise as worthwhile. So if I'm a patient and I'm sick, um, is this research going to stop me dying? Or is it going to reduce my chance of dying? Is it going to make me feel better? Is it going to reduce my symptoms? Is it going to improve my quality of life? Those kind of things. Um, and with all those measures, something like a quarter of all the impact case studies had any measure of any of those things. Now, what were most of them talking about? They were talking about getting a recommendation into a nice guideline. Now, I don't think that's a bad idea. If you've done a good piece of research, you've shown something in your trial, getting into a nice guideline is better than not getting into a nice guideline. But it's a long way from having what I would call societal impact. So although a lot of people scored very highly on their impact case studies in the REV, I think we've got a long way to go before um, we can say most of the medical research that's getting done in this country is actually having impact that's relevant to patients. Okay, my, my, my last question is there, I mean, that, that's, that's been fascinating, but, but putting that together, what advice can you give to researchers, particularly early career researchers, about you know, trying to get their research more, more impact? We all think we're doing impactful research, but maybe there's more we can do and think about and reflect on. Yeah, I think uh, I'm a great believer in the idea of the research system as a complex system, the idea of co-design and co-creation of research. So I would say as an early career researcher, drop the idea that you've got to do a perfect piece of research and then go and try and get it to have impact. No. Build your relationships, have your dialogues before you even think about your research question. Talk to your clinicians. You know, if you're doing something in frontline clinical care, the best people to talk to uh, are the patients, the nurses, you know, the physiotherapists, the doctors, whatever. Listen to what the clinicians have got to say. Listen to what your patient groups have got to say. And then design your study in a way that captures the, uh, the questions that the frontline people are asking. Similarly, if you're working in an area that's relevant for policy, go along to those briefing breakfasts at the King's Fund and they meet the so-and-so, all the things, you know, interact with your non-academics and try and find out how people view the world, because they probably don't view the world the same as you do. Do your literature review, do your piece of original empirical research, but all the time through it, right from the very start, have impact on the agenda, keep your dialogues going. And I've got several studies uh, going on now where the policymakers and the clinicians are phoning me up saying, have you finished that study yet? Have you got results for us? Because they're on the steering group, they were involved in designing the study, they know all about it. Uh, and actually, when we get to the writing up and dissemination stage, it's going to be very easy because they're already working in partnership with us. If you leave it too late, actually nobody's going to be interested in the paper you've written, even if it is in the British Medical Journal, uh, because they, didn't, they weren't involved in creating it. And it, you know, none of their ideas are in it, and so why would they be interested? Trisha, that's fantastic advice. Thank you very much for talking to us today on the podcast. Well, thank you for interviewing me. Good luck, everyone. 
Thank you for listening to Trust the Evidence. If you liked this episode and would like to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.cebm.net or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes by searching Trust the Evidence. See you next time.